Good morning, everyone. How are you? You look relatively dry, so that's a good thing. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to uh, Acts chapter 8, New Testament. If you need a Bible to use, you should find one available down in one of the chair racks around you. Acts chapter 8, as many of you know, but just in case you don't, uh, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, and it's a study of this ancient document we call Acts uh, that basically records how the early church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. And um, through the first six chapters of the book, we've seen the church grow from a handful of Jesus' followers to somewhere around 15,000 believers, uh, men and women who faced you know, faced very little resistance until the, the ever-increasing size and influence of this new Christian community began to worry and frustrate the religious elite in Jerusalem. In fact, if you recall, at one point, uh, out of pure jealousy, the, the religious guys arrested, interrogated, and tortured the apostles and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore or else. And yet their threats and um, acts of intimidation didn't stop Peter or John or Matthew or the entire church, for that matter, from doing what they were compelled to do, you know, through their words and through their actions, share the good news of Jesus with the people of their city. And so tension mounted in Jerusalem, eventually uh, hitting sort of a frenzied level, resulting in the unthinkable happening. Uh, the temple leaders kill a man simply because of faith in Jesus. His name was Stephen. And uh, as we saw last week, Stephen faced his persecutors with just amazing courage and compassion and grace right up to the very end. And if you missed that last week, I encourage you to go online and listen. I think you'll find his story inspiring. But we ended last week uh, with Stephen's murder unleashing a, a citywide attack on all Jesus' followers in Jerusalem. Uh, and a, religious, a young religious Pharisee named Saul was leading the charge and as a result, here's what happens beginning in chapter 8, verse 1. We're told that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what, what he said. So there was great joy in that city. So I want to stop there for a second and just, just note that up until this point, uh, the church and the message of Jesus, for the most part, remained local, right? It remained within the confines of Jerusalem. But if you recall, Jesus said to his followers what? He said, you'll be my witnesses uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and, and to the ends of the earth. And therefore, as unfortunate as it was, the outbreak of persecution in Jerusalem ends up launching the church, some 15,000 people strong, out onto mission. And for the first time, uh, believers in Jesus began to carry the news of God's grace and offer of life to both the greater region and eventually the world. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but how the story unfolds here in the text, I just find fascinating, you know, what happens to the church and where it happens, and even more so, how it happens. And so, I want to share a few observations about the church and her mission as it was carried out by these earliest, these earliest Christians. And first things first, it seems to me as I was reading the text that, that the mission of the church was just very organically um, carried out. So what do I mean by that? Well, uh, we know from the beginning uh, of, of this chapter, from the opening verse, that when this citywide persecution broke out in Jerusalem, that with the exception of the apostles, 
who stood, stayed in Jerusalem, everyone else scattered. In other words, the Christians left the city and they headed out not only to the immediate area of Judea, but also north into the region of Samaria, which was a pretty big deal because Jewish people hated the Samaritans and avoided them at all costs. And yet here are these, these Jesus followers heading there and sharing the news of the Messiah as they go. We're told that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, whenever we hear the word preach, we tend to think of sort of a more formalized public, <clears throat> public speaking deal like I'm doing here this morning, but that's not really what's in view here. The Greek term for preached literally means to bring good news. That's all, to bring good news. So essentially, <clears throat> we have these Christians heading out of Jerusalem and into Samaria and bringing word of good news, news about the Messiah Jesus. And wherever they, wherever they went, they talked about him. They told people his story. Uh, they shared this life-transforming message of God's grace that was offered in and through this, this Savior Jesus. I mean, and it's, uh, it's important to understand here, you know, as this was happening, there were, there were no how-to books on doing this uh, and bringing this news to people, this good news. There were no, no seminars, no bestsellers. There were, there, was, there, was, there were no missiological studies to review. There were no established programs to mimic and implement. There, there, was, there was no protocol to follow. In fact, there's no indication that the apostles told people where they should go or what exactly should do, they should do. They just headed out. I mean, granted, uh, it was persecution that prompted the going, but, but uh, once, the, once on the move, the mission of the church that was given to them by Jesus was carried out by everybody across the board. Not just the apostles, not just identified leaders, but uh, everyone, everyone, every person. And so the mission was very organic in that sense, and it was quite effective because a lot of Samaritans started coming to faith in Jesus. So much so that we're told when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, so many people were coming to faith, they sent Peter and John um, to the region. And when they got there, they found that while a lot of Samaritans believed in Jesus and were baptized in his name, that the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. And so Peter and John, they lay their hands on these new believers, they pray for them, and they, they receive the Spirit of God. Now, it's important we recognize that um, we recognize the un unusual circumstances surrounding this, this event because this was not the norm going forward. From here on out, faith in Christ and the indwelling of God's Spirit, they go together. Those are simultaneous events in a person's life. But this was unique because this situation was unique because even though the mission of the church was organic, it wasn't chaotic. Uh, there was no spiritual anarchy uh, to speak of. I mean, given that this was the first massive acceptance of the, the gospel outside of Jerusalem, uh, and among non-Jewish people, John and, and Peter were sent by the whole group of apostles to go to Samaria to ensure that the Samaritans were getting it right, you know, to authenticate what was happening to them and that it was truly of God, that they were really getting the gospel, they were really understanding it. And it's as if God waits for J John and Peter to arrive, and then he pours out his spirit on these new believers, authenticating their faith and what was happening. So here's sort of the big picture when the Christians were together in Jerusalem under the leadership of the apostles, they could very easily just bring some friends and family to see and hear some good teaching about Jesus. But when, this, when they scattered, when scattered, the, these, these Christians courageously communicate the message of Jesus themselves. 
And although they were perhaps less eloquent, in the end, the church was, was far more effective in its mission. Why? Because the words, the lives, the witness of 15,000 people is far greater than 12. And see, this is one of the other things that the set Christianity apart from other religions of the time, namely that it wasn't the job of the religious professionals. It wasn't just the job of the clergy. It wasn't the job of the priests to impart truth to the world. It was every believer's responsibility. It was a shared responsibility because every, it was like every believer was a priest. And so that's what happened. You know, The church scatters from Jerusalem uh, with the mission of Jesus carried out very organically. But, but that's not to say there was no strategy at play. Because in some ways, uh, the mission was, was, was very strategic. If you recall, Philip is mentioned in the text. And Philip was one of seven individuals chosen by the church, affirmed by the apostles uh, to help. He was chosen to help um, to ensure that all the widows in the church uh, were being served and cared for well. And, and it was said that he was a, a godly, wise person. Well, when the church scatters, here's what Philip does. Philip, we're, said, we were told, went to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And the text in the Greek literally reads that he went to a city, the one in Samaria. And because of that reading, most scholars agree that Philip went straight to the city in Samaria, the capital, Sebasta, uh, modern-day Nablus, which is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. And while I admit uh, it's impossible to prove that Philip's choice was strategic, because maybe it was totally random, but since we know he was a man of wisdom, a man full of the Spirit, it seems more likely that his decision uh, to go there was tactical, knowing that in his ancient world, much like ours, cities were the cultural hubs bustling with men and women, students, children of different backgrounds and nationalities, living and working, uh, coming and going. I mean, it, was, it was there where you would find the greatest number of people. And so, so that's where Philip goes, to share the gospel first. In fact, uh, later in the book of Acts, we're going to see uh, the Apostle Paul and his ministry do a very similar thing, a strategic move, and going to the big Greco-Roman cities of you know, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, uh, and others. Why? Because, again, cities were commercial and cultural hubs. And if you could influence the city, you could influence the world as people would come and go and go back to their, home, their homes and all these things. Historians will tell you it was the growth of the Christian church and its impact in first century cities that contributed to the rapid global expansion of the church. But here's the thing, whether in the city or outside the city, wherever these early Christians went, they embodied the mission. They embodied it. In other words, it wasn't just about what they said regarding Jesus. It was how they lived for him every single day. For example, <clears throat> we're told Philip went to the city in Samaria and he, he did what? He proclaimed the Messiah there. So obviously, embodying the mission involves sharing. It involves sharing the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It means teaching and talking about his life, his death, his resurrection, his, his message of divine love and grace and forgiveness. Uh, in fact, the term used here for proclaim literally means to speak out, just to speak out loud. And so Philip and all these Christians, not only in the city, but all throughout Samaria, were openly sharing this, this good news of Messiah Jesus to people they came in contact with. But that's not where it ends for them, with just words. The church was also serving those in Samaria, right? I mean, think about it. The text says that the crowds heard Philip, 
He was proclaiming the news of this Messiah. They heard Philip, what he said. They saw the signs he performed, and they all, played, they all paid close attention. In other words, Philip was, was speaking and doing. And then we're told, with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, here's the thing. Let's not get distracted or hung up by the miraculous nature of what was happening here, because... Again, it was a unique time in the life of the church where this, this, this gospel of Jesus was being divinely authenticated through miraculous events like this. Instead, I think it's, it's, it's best for us to try and grasp the broader reality, namely that Philip, as well as the entire church, was out in the community, out in the region of Samaria, compassionately helping people in the name of Jesus. You see, Christianity <clears throat> doesn't represent a reductionistic type approach to human problems and or suffering. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, many people in our culture today uh, assume that because human beings uh, are nothing more than highly evolved animals, that all of our problems are physiological in nature and therefore can be cured by way of science, technology, or education. But Christianity doesn't say that. Christianity doesn't reduce man to a mere physiological creature, but recognizes the complexity of our humanity, recognizes the physical, the emotional, the social, the spiritual aspect of our humanity. And so from the very beginning, the church uh, went out and sought to serve people with a variety of problems in a variety of ways, whether it was the poor, the widowed, the sick, the mentally ill, or the spiritually oppressed. The good news of Jesus if God's love and grace was demonstrated in and through the church by helping, by serving those in need. And because the ministry of the church was both sharing and serving, teaching and doing, those in Samaria we told, were told, well, they all paid close attention to what was happening, what was being said and what was happening. And many of them believed in Jesus. They accepted the good news of the kingdom of God and, and the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, both men and women. And because baptism was a, was a public experience, I think we can say that community was another aspect of the embodiment of the mission. Now, don't get this wrong. I mean, baptism carried no salvific uh, value to it. In other words, it is not something a believer did or does to earn God's love and ensure eternal rescue. No, 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 no. It's something you do. Jesus called us to it. It's something you do to visibly express faith in Jesus to visibly identify with his death, his burial, his resurrection to life. Baptism illustrates the, the cleansing of sin, the washing away of sin, and, and, it, and it illustrates the connection of us with a new tribe, a new community, a new people, God's people, the church. Today in America, a lot of people view Christianity as a private me and Jesus type deal. But trust me when I tell you this, Scripture knows nothing of that kind of individualistic religion. Nothing. Christianity is not, is not just a me thing. It's, just, it's not just a me thing. It's a public, it's an us, together, family, community thing. A, a community that was incredibly diverse. Which brings us to one more way the church was in, uh, the, the, mission, the church embodied the mission of Jesus, and that was through racial reconciliation. You say, well, that's interesting. I didn't notice that verse in the text. Well, it's not in the text. It's not just one verse. It's the whole text. It's the whole story, really. 
Because again, in first century Palestine, the Jews and Samaritans, man, they hated each other. They, they just hated each other. The Samaritans were, view, were viewed as filthy half-breeds because they intermarried with foreigners and adopted many of their, their foreigner the foreigner cultural practices, social, social and religious. And so from a young age, Jewish children were raised and taught to, you know, stay out of and stay away from Samaria because the half-breeds up there, well, well, they're unclean and they're despised by God. Because of that, the Samaritans equally hated the Jewish people. So, I mean, there were, there were some serious, irreconcilable differences between the two, these two groups of people, deep, abiding, and just ugly prejudice. But now, all of a sudden, you know, here come these Jesus followers sharing with and serving the Samaritans in, in a way that it's never happened before, inviting them into community. I mean, it was... It was an unprecedented thing. It was exhilarating, uh, an exhilarating thing as the gospel of Jesus and news of God's grace and love extended to all people, all people began to break down racial barriers and erase lines of division between men and women who would otherwise just hate and mistreat each other. See, the mission of the church was no superficial thing. It was fleshed out. It was embodied through Christians sharing and serving inviting into relationship, inviting into community those who were racially and culturally different. Because of Jesus, there was this, this beautiful, this, this authentic reconciliation taking place, reconciliation between people and their God, and rec- reconciliation between people and people who are different, between both groups. And it was a beautiful thing. It was a God thing. And as a result, we're told that there was, get this, there was great joy in the city. Great joy, not just in the church. It doesn't say great joy in the church. I'm sure there was. But it says there was great, there was great joy in the entire city. And, and really, the whole region of Samaria, there was joy because of this. And when I, I, re, when I read that, I, th- I thought to myself, well, okay, then does, does that mean that everybody became a Christian in Samaria in the city? Well, no, that's not what it means. However, it does mean that who these Christians were and what they were doing was very well received by all Samaritans. Why? Because the church was being helpful. And the Samaritans were grateful. A few years ago, as a church, we asked ourselves a question. It's a a hard question to ask, but I think it's a question every local congregation needs to ask itself. The question is this. If we weren't here... Would our community miss us? I mean, if we weren't around anymore, would the community give a rip? Would they even know we're gone? And, you know, look, the the easy answer is, well, of course they'd know we're gone. Of course they'd miss us. They'd miss, you know, our landscaping. They'd miss our potluck dinners. Of course they would miss us. They would somehow they would miss us, but would they really? That's a tough, it's tough to answer that question. Um, But here's the deal. If we're just huddled away in our isolated enclave a couple hours a week and not out in mass loving and somehow helping and serving the greater community, then look, we're only fooling ourselves. Uh, We're just living in denial. We're only relevant to ourselves. And no one would miss us if we were gone. There's a proverb in the Old Testament that says, When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. 
And essentially what that means is that if, if as God's people, we're helping our city, we're helping our community, we're showing favor toward others who are different from us or who are like us, it doesn't matter who they are, we're showing favor, acts of kindness, justice, compassion, etc. We're serving not just ourselves, but all people, then the unbelieving community will say, man, we may not fully understand you people. We may not even fully agree with you, but we are so glad you're here. And uh, we're glad you're helping us. See, for the early church, first in Jerusalem and now in Samaria, acts of Christian love and generosity and, and service and sacrifice was, was helpful to everybody. Everybody was helpful to. And it brought joy to both believers and unbelievers alike. And in the end, it led a, an awful lot of people to Jesus. So the mission of the church was, it was organic, it was strategic, it was embodied. And perhaps most importantly, it was grace-oriented. You see, there's a, there's a story within the story here in the text that we haven't discussed yet. It's about a man in Samaria named Simon who had practiced sorcery in the city for quite some time and amazed all the people with whatever it was he was doing and boasted of, of being someone great, someone special. And a lot of people bought into it, uh, and he, so he had a lot of followers. I mean, and we don't know exactly what kind of sorcery he practiced, what was involved in that, but it's interesting that when he, along with many others, saw the authentic power of God revealed in and through the works of the church, specifically with Philip, Simon was so impressed, he expressed belief in Jesus and was baptized. But it seems that Simon may have been more interested in and perhaps obsessed with the miracles he witnessed than anything else because he kind of stalked Philip for a while. He, he followed him wherever he went. And uh, when the apostles, uh, Peter and John, arrive on the Samaritan scene and they assess the situation and they affirm that, yes, these believers are uh, truly understand the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace. They laid their hands on them, they prayed for them, and there was this powerful outpouring of God's spirit on these new believers, right? But apparently Simon got left out of that. And so he basically says to Peter and John, man, I am so impressed by all this that's happening. Here is some silver. That's what the text says. He offered, he offered them silver. He says, now, give me also this ability to have everyone on whom I lay my hands receive the Holy Spirit. See, here's the deal, and this is concerning to me. It seems that not everyone who professes faith in Jesus or who goes through baptism even actually understands the gospel of grace. And that you can get, you can get very, very close to the truth and still miss it. Simon certainly, he certainly didn't get it because what does he do? He essentially tries to buy spiritual power of his, as if it's some kind of marketplace commodity. And, and Peter, not being one to hesitate speaking the truth, says, uh, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. He says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. He says, Simon, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord and hope he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see you are full of bitterness and, and captive to sin. So you tell me, you know, what was the reason Simon's heart was not yet right before God? What, what was the reason for his lingering bitterness? What was the reason he was still captive to sin? I think it's simple. I think it's because he didn't really understand the truth of the gospel. 
He was thinking, look, man, this power stuff is cool. The Holy Spirit of God, man, is, it's, it's something I can buy. It's something I can earn. It's some, maybe it's something I can bargain for with silver or whatever. But it's not, you see. In Jesus, salvation, the indwelling presence of God in our lives is a gift. It's a gift that, that, that's offered as a gift that we receive. And Simon missed that part. Somehow he missed that part because we're told that very clearly Philip proclaimed the truth, the truth of this good news of Jesus, the Messiah, who came and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Yet he missed it. And I, I think it's critical for us to recognize how what was true in the first century is still true today. That every other religion says, do these things, give this money, practice these rituals, keep the rules, and maybe you'll make it to God. The Christianity says, God has come to us. God has made it to us. Here is God in the flesh. Jesus, embrace him. And the moment you do, God's grace, it doesn't harden your heart, it melts it. It doesn't fill you with bitterness, but peace. Grace doesn't burden your life. It sets you free, you see. It sets you free. Simon the sorcerer missed that. Sadly, he missed that. And so he says to Peter, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. So two questions here. First, did Simon ever come to understand and accept the grace of God in Jesus? I don't know. I don't think so. Second question, do you understand and have you accepted the grace of God through faith in Jesus? That is a question only you can answer. I heard the story recently of a guy named William Holland who was a friend, a close friend of 18th century English pastor Charles Wesley. Holland was a very good, moral, upright, church-going kind of guy, but he struggled with feeling like he wasn't right with God, that something just wasn't right. And he was always working at that and trying to figure it out. And so he and Wesley and a couple other people were meeting together, sort of had their own little life group. And they were studying scripture and they were, they were reading Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians, the, the New Testament book of Galatians. And one night in their group, something profound happened. Actually, it happened to a number of them, but something Profound happens to Holland specifically. And it happens when Wesley was reading out loud from Luther's uh, book. And when it came to the idea of eternal life, this, these are the words that Luther wrote. And Wesley's reading this out loud. And he says, what then, have we, what then? Have we nothing to do? No. Nothing but only accept Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Have we nothing to do? No, nothing but only except Jesus. And according to William Holland's own account, at that moment, as he read those words, he said, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My burden fell off in an instant, he says. And my heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. So what happened to William Holland? It's what happens to all of us if and when we finally grasp the truth of God's grace. Have we nothing to do? No. Nothing but only accept Jesus. Nothing else. 
And I'll tell you what, man, when that reality, when that reality breaks through the religious crust of our hearts and sinks in deeply, then the great, the great burden of just trying to be good enough falls off. It falls off, and we're filled with peace and the love of God, and we are free. You know, in many religious circles today, church circles, more liberal-minded people will tell you, look, you don't have to believe in divine judgment or hell or the virgin birth or even Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. You don't have to believe in that. God is pleased with us if we just try our best, you know, be kind, be generous, be inclusive, be good. But I tell you what, that, that puts an awful lot of burden on us, doesn't it? Because how kind and generous and inclusive and good do we have to be? When do we know we've reached the point where we've been good enough? It raises our spiritual anxiety because you never really know. It leads to just guilt and, and discouragement and uh, it's debilitating. More conservative-minded people will tell you, we live in a wicked, wicked, wicked world. So build up the protective barriers, build up the walls, isolate yourselves, and keep the rules. You're not a Christian if you don't do this, that, or the other thing. If you don't look this way, talk this way, or, or do a certain thing. Don't you see how both of those approaches are incredibly burdensome? Both are. I mean, of course we have to obey God's word on what is, he says is right and good and healthy and best for us. It's for our, good. It's for our own good. But that's not where Christianity begins. It begins with the burdens coming off. It all begins with Jesus and the grace of God. And if we don't understand that, if we in this room, if we don't get that right, man, how will our community and world ever get it right? How will they ever know the truth? How will they ever accept it? The Samaritans, look, the Samaritans didn't, they had religion, but they didn't have joy until the grace of God came to them. And that didn't happen until Christians scattered got out of their comfort zone, embarked on this mission Jesus left them to be his witnesses, witnesses of his love, his sacrifice, his forgiveness, and his grace given to all who believe. And that, you know, that remains our mission as well today. And as his church, my prayer is that God would grant us the wisdom and the power to break out of our areas of comfort engage in this mission, embody it, and fulfill it. And in so doing, bring true joy to our community and to our world. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, it, it just it never ceases to amaze me as I read this record of your church how... <laughs> how things have changed so much and yet how they remain the same. And I think, I think what troubles me most, what excites me is what the church did for Samaria, the way that they engaged with mission, the way that they went out and they shared the truth, they served, um, they, they loved people in your name, they, 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 they worked at reconciling cultural and ethnic differences, embracing all people and creating this new, loving, beautiful, diverse community called the church. That's so exciting to see how it happened and longing to, for that to be true in our lives. But I, I think what troubles me most about the passage is this guy, Simon, who was so close to the truth, who acknowledged Jesus as a real person, 
But somehow, some way, he kind of missed the gospel, thinking that he could somehow buy it, or earn it, or bargain for it. He missed it. He missed the truth. And my fear is that many in our churches today, maybe even some here this morning, have come this close to the truth and still risk missing it. Because this idea of being a good enough person, earning our way, bargaining our way through, um, remains. And so it burdens us. And I pray this morning, if any of us are burdened by that 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 idea of what it means to be a Christian, I pray this morning that the truth of the gospel would penetrate deep into their hearts, all of our hearts. And in so doing, may that burden just fall away. May it just fall away. And may your love and peace fill our hearts anew and bring us joy, the kind of joy that our world needs, the joy people are desperate the joy that comes in knowing Jesus and, and your grace in their lives. And so I pray that your spirit would meet with us here in a special and powerful way even now as we, as we remember the one who gave his life for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us this morning and I, I really hope that that you understand what this idea of Christianity is because I, I, f- I really feel like you can be so close to it and still miss it. And I think a lot of people in our culture today think they understand it, but they really don't because they're caught up in this religious performance mentality and, and the grace of God. They miss it by just, just a little bit. They just miss the grace of God and Jesus. And uh, if we don't get it, if we don't understand it, if we haven't embraced it and experienced it, If it hasn't filled our hearts with peace and love and joy, then how are we ever going to bring that peace and love and joy to our world? And that's that's what Jesus has called us to do as the church. And that's what we're committed to doing, not just through our words, but through serving others and through to bring about a beautiful reconciliation for people with their God and people with other people. Breaking down the racial divides and breaking, putting all that stuff aside and, and allowing God to create a beautiful, diverse community of grace and love. That's what the church is meant to be. And uh, that's my hope and prayer for us. And as he makes us that, we'll have a greater, greater impact in our Samaria and we'll bring joy to our city and joy to the people in our, in our lives. In fact, I would, I would challenge you that this week, who can you bring joy to? Who can you serve? Who can you share with? Who can you, who, who can you love that's different? Uh, and in so doing, bring joy into their lives. Think about it, and then, and then go do it. Because we're out there in the world more than we are in here together. And that's where ministry happens. That's where Jesus has called us to. So thanks for being here. Come back next week. You know, as we see the gospel of grace go to the Samaritans, next week we're going to see it kind of begin to branch out even further geographically because uh, the, the grace of God is going to, is going to meet up with a, a, a guy from a faraway place, a faraway land, uh, who happens to be in and around Jerusalem. And Philip's going to have the opportunity to talk to him about, about this Jesus. And it's a fascinating story. And I hope you can be, uh, be with us to talk about it, okay? In the meantime, have a great week. Bring some joy to somebody. Let me pray for you.
And now, Lord, I pray that as this beautiful thing known as your church, a uh, community of love and peace and, and joy, I pray that as we go out into our Samaria, out into our world, that we would, we would go with this mission in mind. We go just very organically, that we would go and we would, we would share, we would serve. Um, we would welcome people into community with us and relationship with us. We would do what we can to bring about love and joy between all people. And in so doing, point them to Jesus. And now I ask that you give us strength and power to be your church in the world as you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.